I'm Dr. Ann Katz. Welcome to Sexually Speaking, a podcast about all things related to sexuality, but with zero sensationalism and lots of information. For the last 20 years, it might even be 21 now, I've worked with individuals and couples who are experiencing sexual difficulties, mostly those related to cancer treatment. I've written a whole lot of articles and books on the topic and traveled all over the world, educating healthcare providers and people with cancer. It's been a great adventure on many levels. And now I've started a small private practice for anyone experiencing sexual problems, especially those related to any kind of illness, infertility, etc. You can learn more about me, my books, and other writing on my website, www.drannkatz.com. I'm very excited today to talk to a friend and colleague, Dr. Elizabeth Gordon, a psychiatrist who specializes in sexual medicine and integrative sex therapy. We need to talk more about that one. I've known Dr. Gordon for a number of years and am always impressed by her mind-body approach to sexuality. So welcome, Dr. Gordon, and thank you for being a guest on my podcast. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. So excited to be here to talk with you. So let's start with something that really it bothers me a lot. And, you know, I we've certainly talked in the past about this and, and you've done some research and some writing about this. Why are so many healthcare providers reluctant to talk about sexuality and sexual concerns with their patients? What are the barriers? There are a lot of barriers to why healthcare providers don't talk about sexual health with their patients. And the research There is actually research in this area, and it shows that there are personal reasons and systems-based reasons for it. So some of the personal reasons that are cited are religious beliefs or personal beliefs, fear that they would be intrusive with the patient and intruding on something that is not the area in which they are supposed to intrude. Um, Age and gender differences would exacerbate the idea that this is an inappropriate or difficult conversation to have or the need to address the topic. And then really it all just boils down to there's a significant amount of discomfort with the topic. In the research, the systems-based difficulties or barriers to addressing the topic include lack of privacy that is cited by various healthcare professionals because there's no way to interact more privately with the patients and or time constraints. In modern medicine, there are a lot of time constraints in the various healthcare visits. And then another one is billing difficulties, that there's no way to bill for actually addressing sexual health. And all of these are true to some extent, but there really is one major underlying reason to all of these. And that is because there is a significant lack of medical sexual health education. And this is the case, Uh, it's really cited in different professions for different reasons, but it seems to boil down to the fact that healthcare providers are trained in so many areas, but not in this one. And that probably has to do with the stigma. And I'll get back to that in a moment. I think though, that it's really crazy because the evidence behind it really shows that when healthcare providers are educated in this topic, then they have greater comfort and greater knowledge. And if you think about it, healthcare providers are taught to deal with so many difficult and abnormal situations. 
really isn't normal to insert your hands into somebody's orifices or to slice open their bodies, but healthcare providers are taught to do that and taught to handle it. So the idea that this is something that's uncomfortable or shouldn't be broached really also can be tackled with education. And the research shows that that is true, that that helps make it less uncomfortable. And the idea that this is something that's uncomfortable shouldn't be a barrier to providing that education. And there's also evidence that when this education is provided, healthcare professionals really have an increased understanding of the topic. They understand why the topic is important. They are more comfortable with their own knowledge level and they're more comfortable with their ability to handle discussions with the patient and even more likely to engage in discussions with the patient or perhaps even initiate those conversations, which is really what patients are looking for, according to the research. They want their provider to be the one to bring it up. So interesting you talk about that. Just a couple of weeks ago, the Journal of Sexual Medicine published a study, a small study of medical students and trainees. So trainees are residents and what we call fellows. So these are people who have finished their four or five years of residency and now they're super specializing in something. And so in the, the study showed that while 65% said that they had received some formal sexual health education, and we can talk about what that looks like, 14% said that they'd been taught informally. So perhaps, you know, on the units or when uh, working with a specialist and 20%, so one in five had received no education during medical school, which is alarming. And the study also showed that only residents so doctors in training in a relevant field, such as urology, obstetrics, and gynecology, you know, which seems kind of obvious, only they felt confident in their ability to assess patients with a sexual health issue. Everybody else said that they had no confidence in talking about this. Uh, this is really concerning to me. This is deeply concerning. And that paper, actually, it shows evidence that is not very different than the prior evidence that has been found in these various studies. And the areas that really do discuss sexuality to any extent are those areas, urology, OB-GYN, and also psychiatry, where it has traditionally been the purview of psychiatrists to deal with sexual function or dysfunction. But that has shifted into a more biological approach lately. So there's less sexual health education in psychiatry these days than there was, and more in urology and OB-GYN. But even urologists and OB-GYN, this was a small study, but even in some of the other studies, those trainees in those areas report that they have not enough or they would like more and sometimes some of the same discomforts with addressing sexual health. I talk to a lot of nurses and social workers, you know, people called allied healthcare providers. I talk to them a lot about, you know, what the barriers are for them. And what I hear over and over beyond the sort of the cultural, perhaps the familial things is that they are really scared that somebody is going to ask them a question that they don't know the answer to. And 
you know, in a way I know in nursing school, there is very little attention paid to sexuality. And there is such an explosion of knowledge that we can't cram everything into students' heads, right? We should be teaching them how to seek out information. And there's plenty of good information out there if they were just interested. I have to agree with that. So I argued in one of my papers that actually sexual health education correlates very well with humanities and professionalism education, and that it can be used as a very good example, thereby killing two birds with one stone, to get a significant amount of sexual health information in, but also to teach healthcare providers how to address situations in a humanistic manner. So that would be dealing with their own prejudices, dealing with learning how to be uncertain around a topic, dealing with their various transferences. That's when they feel something towards a patient because of their own belief and also learn how to then use the interprofessional systems better, refer out better, use the allied healthcare professionals better. So that I think that there's room with sexual health education to actually not be a burden in various healthcare education, but be a gateway education in which you instill both the sexual health education and help students learn all of these other topics. Um, unfortunately, right now, there are a lot of barriers to that. You know, the, the again, the reason why individual practitioners may not address sexual health really make boil down to stigma and lack of training, but the systems-based reasons are larger. And as you said, the biggest one is that they're saying there's no time to teach everything. And we have to argue, yes, that is true, but you do need to know the basics. There's still time to teach the basics, and this is fundamental and elemental to the human experience. And so this is one of the basics that needs to be taught, plus it can be used to teach many things at once. The other side to this is there are arguments that there's lack of money to create the curricula. But again, if you're combining the curricula, you really can mitigate that financial burden and that there's a lack of experienced faculty to teach courses. But that argument seems moot right now, given that everybody can do everything online. Everybody can be in any place around the world with relative ease after we've learned how to Zoom everything. Um, and then the real barrier here is that there really are vague or even lacking uh, cited standards for sexual health education really across healthcare professional education settings. So it's not just amongst uh, physicians, but also I know amongst various therapists, uh, groups of therapists, psycho psychologists, and I'm hearing from you from nursing training as well. Yeah. So those of us who are eminently qualified to teach would gladly do it because we believe so strongly that this is important. You know, they say that, that human beings are sexual from the uterus or womb to the grave. And I don't know if you've seen, there's this, there's this little video of an ultrasound where a fetus is touching, well, it's a male fetus touching his penis and, you know, ha, 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 this is so funny, you know, boys and their, and their penis. I'm not sure that that is, is real. I mean, I think it's kind of cute. It, certainly could be altered. 
But we are sexual beings throughout the course of life. And I think the issue of, of, of gender or, or sex and age is a really big one. I think particularly for younger practitioners who may feel really awkward with a patient who, or an individual or couple for that matter, you know, who are the the age of their parents or their grandparents even. And I certainly think that perhaps more mature practitioners perhaps have greater ease talking about this. Um, you know, but the world belongs to the young. And uh, we really do need to see, uh, you know, people starting early in their practice. So it becomes something that doesn't feel stigmatized and something that isn't uncomfortable to talk about. I think that is really true. And I think that there is that discrepancy in age, but I think it actually does sometimes work the other way too. I have heard of older practitioners who worry about broaching the subject with younger patients. Um, and it also works in other ways. Um, male practitioners who worry about broaching it with female patients or the other way around. And um, being worried about the discrepancies or being seen to intrude across some of those cultural or age or social lines uh, heightens that sense of stigma and just provides one more reason for people not to do it. So I think it's really important to provide the education that allows people to understand this is yet another element across the lifetime, as you said. And yes, actually, I have seen that photo, but I have also seen the research that shows that this is something that is very common. So it's not just altered. It's extremely common in male and female fetuses. It's just harder to see in female. And it's extremely common in infants to see them touching their genitalia. And this is not sexual in the way that adults understand it, but it is very sensual and comforting. So it is a part of life from cradle to grave. Yeah, absolutely. I often talk to students about how when you change a baby's diaper, the first thing that happens is that little hand goes down to the genitals. And, you know, when parents pull the hand away or quickly, you know, put on a new diaper, we're already sending a message that this is not okay. And, you know, people have so many issues around pleasure, which leads me to another question. So, so you know very well what is taught in medical school, for example, in formal education. I have heard from trainees that what they are taught is essentially the dysfunction or the problem. So, for example, uh, when learning urology, they're taught about erectile dysfunction. They talk about premature ejaculation. They talk about all the problems. And, you know, for with with women in a, a gynecology uh, rotation, they'll hear things like prolapse and perhaps female sexual dysfunction, which you know is is quite broad. But they don't learn very much about healthy sexuality. And is that something that you have seen as well? The research supports that across the board, there is extremely limited amounts of focus on sex positive education or emphasizing the healthy sexuality or healthy sex, healthy sexual health, <laughs> so to speak, the aspects of pleasure, the aspects of satisfaction, the aspects of um, how it is incorporated in a positive manner into the lifespan. And it is true that I, I cannot speak because I do not know quite as well the research behind some of the other health 
professional education. Um, though I have seen more broad uh, research showing that this is true there as well. But I can tell you very clearly that the research across the board in physician education shows that there's extremely limited emphasis on any of those positive aspects. And what they are focused on is not just sexual dysfunction, but also risk mitigation. So STIs, sexually transmitted infections, how to prevent those STIs and HIV and how to prevent unwanted pregnancy. And that for many physicians is the extent of their education. Maybe a few mentions of the dysfunction, how to prevent the STIs, how to prevent unwanted pregnancy. And that's about it. Yeah. And, you know, that bothers me in so many ways as a woman who is now postmenopausal. Uh, you know, certainly we know that women go to, to physicians, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, complaining about some of the sexual changes during the menopausal transition and after, and are often kind of brushed off. Well, that's what happens when you get older, kind of live with it. That notion of use it or lose it, which I think is so coercive, because if, you know, if sex is painful, saying to someone, use it or lose it, is not helpful at all. And the same thing happens to, to men after a surgery for prostate cancer. I hear that all the time from my urology colleagues. You know, I told him, use it or lose it. Well, if he's not able to have an erection and you're not offering anything that is useful and helpful, why do you want to make the man feel worse? I, I have to agree. I think that we need to reframe the education and we need to begin by understanding what sexuality is and what sexual health is. And my favorite definition comes from the World Health Organization, where they emphasize that it is a positive relationship to sexuality. Sexual health is a positive relationship to your sexuality. Sexuality encompasses gender, orientation, desires, eroticism. It encompasses all of these elements, relational, personal, and the emphasis is on the healthy relationship to sexuality, all these elements, not just the absence of disease or infirmity. And if we begin with that concept, and also, I have to say, one of my pet peeves is really emphasize that sex is not just penis and vagina intercourse, but sex is everything that we engage in for the purposes of erotic pleasure, we start to reframe the conversation. And if we begin there, that leaves a lot of room to talk about it. But, you know, it's also interesting because you said they're not being taught or they're only being taught about the dysfunction. But I have to say another pet peeve of mine is that really so much of what constitutes the education on sexuality and sexual health is not actually the formal curriculum, but the hidden curriculum. The hidden curriculum is what we describe as what is being conveyed that is not part of the set educational objectives. And the hidden curriculum can come up because of personal beliefs. It can come up in sideways and offhand remarks, and it can come up, it is actually underscored literally by what is not being taught. So when you're not teaching about sexuality, you're saying it's not important or it's not to be talked about. And then if you add that in with the offhand comments that people make, use it as a joke or use it for something that's funny or reference it, then that's what's really being taught about sexuality. Yeah. So if effort to teach it, you are really making a certain statement. 
Absolutely. So let's just talk for a little bit about really, you know, the other side of that conversation. So someone who is experiencing, you know, some sort of sexual problem, whatever it is, and it, you know, it really can can go through a range of of experiences. Um, how can people get help if they're, you know, their so-called trusted healthcare provider? You know, and I think that's another thing. We certainly here in Canada, where we are, there is a, there is a shortage of family physicians, and so many people don't have a family physician. Unlike in the U.S., where where someone's primary care provider could be, for example, an internist or an OBGYN uh, or a cardiologist for that matter. Here in Canada, you know, that first, that first line really is a nurse practitioner or a family physician, and there's a shortage of both. So people are often going for episodic care. They're going to walk, what we call walk-in clinics, which you would probably call urgent care clinics. And with episodic care, when you're seeing somebody different every time, there just isn't that trust for the for the person, um, you know, that comfort, that ability to to ask the question because I don't know who that provider is. But so you know, that was sort of a little aside. So how can people get help when they're experiencing sexual difficulties or problems? So this is something that I've talked about with a number of patients who actually are coming to see me about sexual issues, but how do they talk to their other physicians about it or how would they notify? And it's something that I've worked on to teach other uh, physicians about, you know, when to be open to it. And I'm trying to do more education more publicly about this topic. So this is what I would have to say, that the first thing that needs to be done is an internal decision that this is important and this is something that you are going to tackle and your healthcare provider be darned because their discomfort should not be a barrier. And in fact, that is extremely unethical on the part of the healthcare provider, um, but their discomfort should not be a barrier to your ability to have good health across the board. So that means physical, mental, and sexual, as well as all the other areas. So that may or may not be comforting, but I would, as a sexual health physician, urge everybody to hear this and say, you know what, if I am having any problem whatsoever in this area, it is legitimate and I am going to talk about it. And then sit down and think about what it is that is bothering you and what questions you have and write them down absolutely write them down. Because that way, when you go into the office, you have a piece of paper in front of you that can help you just get through it. So you don't have to worry about being, or you don't have to worry as much about being uncomfortable or forgetting what you have to say because of being uncomfortable. So that if you have all of those there, you simply say, yes, there is another problem that I want to talk to you about. I've written it down. Here it is. Here are the questions that I have about it. And even if your provider doesn't bring it up, you bring it up. You say, yes, there is this other problem I want to talk to you about. And if your provider says they don't have the answers for this, or heaven forbid, openly admits or behaviorally demonstrates that they are uncomfortable, that is not a reason for you to give up. You can ask them to refer you to somebody who is competent 
to assess and treat your problem, or you can let them know that you still would like to see somebody else that can handle that problem. Um, and the other side to this is, unfortunately, that I would have to urge the public to be able to increase their ability to advocate for themselves and increase their knowledge. And while I am working very hard on the one side to make sure that that is not the case forever, right now that's where we're at. So I would also work on the other side with the public to say, you must advocate for yourself. The, you must educate yourself. And some of the things that can be really helpful for this are to be aware of the various sexual health and sexual medicine or sexual science societies, professional societies that are out there. And many of them have provider lists. So if you find yourself running into problems with either addressing whichever care provider you're seeing or that you have tried to do so and you're not getting the answers, you can always go onto these professional societies and contact one of the health professionals. As you said, everybody that is involved in sexual health is raring to go to educate, to treat, wants to be out there, wants to be helpful, and will most likely, even if they can't see you in their practice, be able to help refer you to the correct place to get the treatment or the assessment or the help that you need. Thank you for that. There's one thing that I would add is that this is certainly happening here in Canada, that people are told one problem per appointment, which just makes me cringe. I just think that's not the way that you develop a trusting relationship. Um, so if you do have a problem, make an appointment specifically to address that problem. Dr. Gordon, as you know, you know, there's this thing that we call the doorknob syndrome that as the healthcare provider is trying to leave the room with their hand on the doorknob, often the patient comes up with something like this, right, that is going to take some time uh, that, that, you know, may make both of you uncomfortable. And so don't leave it to the very last thing because that healthcare provider knows that, you know, the waiting room is full. Um, and may not be able to address your issue uh, with enough attention, detail, information. I think that's a really good idea. I think that another way actually to perhaps get over the discomfort is if you have that piece of paper in hand, and particularly if you've made the appointment to tackle that specific problem, that you really hit it head on first. Get it out of the way. Hit the hard thing first. And there's something else I wanted to say to say about that. I've had some patients say to me that they may feel that they are uncomfortable or don't know what language to use. And I want to urge all people to just say it. And that it is more important that you really just talk about it. Don't worry about the language that you're using. Use the language that you feel comfortable with. And the practitioner may or may not pick up on it, may reflect that language or not, or may provide some other words. I mean, I would say, please don't use any of this colloquial slang terms that are also used as curse words, because that may, in some settings, lead to some practitioners taking you less seriously, uh, though not sexual health professionals. But Otherwise, don't worry about the language. Use what you're comfortable with. Use what you can use to just get the problem out there. And then really do tackle that first and make it the point. This is the problem. I need help with it. How can you help me? Yeah, that's great advice. So, you know, I often will see 
an individual or couples, and I mostly see couples, and uh, these are people who have ex- experienced cancer and and may have been treated in the past, and they will often start the conversation or call me and say, we're having problems with intimacy. And intimacy is the euphemism that, you know, people are more comfortable with instead of saying I'm having a sexual problem. And I like to educate people. And I will often say to them, so, you know, what's the, how, what's the emotional connection between you and your partner? And emotional connection is the true meaning of intimacy. And of course, you know, they're just using the word as a euphemism. And the emotional connection is strong and the partner has been supported. You know, certainly there are times where a partner is not supportive, but generally those are not people that come for help uh, because certainly not to a a healthcare provider. I'll always say to them, your problem is a sexual problem. What's going on? Nothing you can say to me is going to surprise me because I've been doing this for more than two decades and I've pretty much heard everything. Uh, But yeah, language is really important. Uh, And it's important to be direct because otherwise, you know, your healthcare provider who likes to talk, you know, we talk at patients a lot, um, may go off in a tangent and then you have to correct them. And, you know, that's also uncomfortable. And it is important to say what is going on, as you said, very directly. Um, You know, that language one is funny. It's, um, it also goes in the other ways. There's many euphemisms. And I always tell patients, bring it on, (laughs) bring them on, because either I've heard them or I'm ready to collect a new one. I am happy to collect a new term for whatever it is that I didn't know existed. But as a patient, you do have to understand that it is your right to be able to say what it is that you need to say in the way that is comfortable for you. And if it is shocking to the practitioner, that's on them. And, uh, you know, as a sexual health professional, I, I was reminded by something you said of what I say to patients, which is, I don't care if you're having sex with camels every other Tuesday, as long as you can tell me it's consenting and safe and fun. I want to hear what's going on. So but, speaking, speaking of which, excuse me, what is integrative sex therapy? So integrative sexual health and uh, integrative sexual psychiatry is what I have come up with for the way that I practice. So I have a background in integrative medicine, which is the use or the study of and then application of other health parameters beyond just Western medicine. So that I have done some deeper study. I am not certified to practice only, but I've done some deeper study into Eastern medicine, traditional Chinese medicine, done a deep dive into forms of yoga. I'm trained to do meditation and breath work. And I have studied extensively um, the addition of various supplements, the value of nutrients and other health supporting parameters and additions beyond Western medicine. And I believe that this is something that is not necessarily paid enough attention to in Western medicine. There are a number of sub-societies within medical physician societies, and I belong to one for general medicine, one for psychiatry. And there is a little bit in um, of research in integrative sexual health. So I've 
read all that research, attended that, talked about that at a recent American Psychiatric Association meeting. And it is the use of all of these parameters, as well as I bring a personal background of having done more study of sociology, um, a study of history of medicine, and trying to understand what patients, where patients are, why are the problems going on? And I really look at each patient that comes into my office and try to figure out where is this problem coming from? And is it multiple areas from literally the microscopic? Is this something genetic? Is this something with the neurochemicals? Is this a hormonal problem? Is this a chemical issue? Up through the anatomy and physiology, up through the personal history, up through the family history, relational history, up through the culture or religion, and up through the larger history of their group. And so try to keep in mind all of those different contexts and then figure out the best way to help them and support them to really optimize their mental health, physical health, and sexual health, because these things are all completely intertwined, both to help with the sexual health problem, but also to optimize their health and happiness overall. And to do that in a way that incorporates all of these treatments and understandings to get maximum benefit with minimum side effects for a lifelong treatment. <laughs> wow. I'm going to have to get you back to talk about this in more depth. So stay tuned. I <laughs> so that's it for Sexually Speaking this time. There'll be more from, from me with another guest in the coming weeks. If there's a topic you're particularly interested in hearing about, or if you want to contact me about private counseling, please email me at counseling at drannkatz.com. That's counseling with two L's. Thank you so much, Dr. Gordon. This was really, really interesting and informative. It was my pleasure. <laughs>